Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing podcast with your host, Austin Yeh and Bayou cannot be with us today as he's a little bit wrapped up in some things, but don't fret, he will still be in the podcast episode. So you know how it goes with these solo preambles, they are very, very awkward. There's not much to talk about. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I already missed Mayu already. It's just having another dynamic in this preamble makes things more interesting and flow more naturally. So anyways, as I mentioned, the past preamble, uh, sentiment has been picking up in the real estate market. Multiple offers are back, not in every property, but definitely seeing a lot more walkthroughs, a lot more offers coming on the table, multiple site and scene offers, and overall higher prices for houses. Again, strike while the iron is hot. So I am picking up on wholesaling. I have put out a couple of flyers, well, a couple, I mean, a couple of tens of thousands, um, as well as other sort of marketing avenues. So expect there to be more deals coming down in the pipeline onboarding new bird dogs coming soon. If you guys follow me on Instagram, you probably saw that I've been promoting that I've been hiring new bird dogs in 2024. So I have a couple of applications going to be going through the interview process next week and then finally settling down on a few bird dogs. And hopefully that means that for those on our buyers list, obviously more deals coming your way. So what's been going on this week in terms of news headlines? Of course, one of the big one is that the federal government announced a two-year cap on student permits. So the limiting undergraduate study permits to approximately 360,000 in 2024, which is about a 35% reduction in the previous year in 2023. In provinces such as Ontario, we may see up to a 50% decline in uh, student permits, student study uh, visa permits. And obviously that's going to have an impact on the rental market because a lot of the students who are entering our country in the last two years due to these puppy mill diploma universities these quote-unquote fake colleges and universities that essentially don't focus on quality education, but rather monetizing students, have uh, led to the housing crisis to get much worse. And we're seeing that impact rentals in a lot of uh, cities that are targets, prime targets for these uh, international students to move to because they have these puppy mill universities. I suspect that we're going to see rental demand start easing in some of these cities, or at least rental growth to start easing because the last couple of years have been completely unsustainable. Obviously, it's a step in the right direction and hopefully allows the housing market to sort of get back on track to balance the supply and demand dynamics. Because as much as we say that there's a supply issue, which is definitely true, there's a housing supply issue as there's not many housing starts relative to people entering the working age population. In fact, it's a record low um, that we've ever had in Canada. On top of it being a supply issue, there's a demand issue as well. And the demand side can't be ignored because the demand side's easier to control in the short term, whereas the supply side is is harder to control. So we got to cut down on the demand for these rentals. And one of the best ways to do so is to taper down immigration, not saying not to have any immigration at all, but obviously understand that um, if you let in 1.2 million people in your country in a year, that's going to worsen the housing crisis. Another big news is that Bank of Canada decided to hold overnight rates at 5%. One of the key points that Tiff Macklin had mentioned is is that 
if the economy evolves in line with the projections that the Bank of Canada has published, they expect the future discussions will be about how long they maintain policy rates at 5%. And they believe that it's at 5%, the overnight rate is sufficient in bringing down inflation to their target. So pretty much they've, they've indicated to us that there's not going to be any future rate hikes. Now, they didn't explicitly say that. They said that if the data comes out and it shows that more rate hikes is needed, they will go down that path. But for the most part, um, so then the delivery was good news all in all. They said that we're reaching our goals. They're a little bit concerned about how sticky core inflation is. But that being said, they're right on track. And if everything goes sort of as planned, really, the only question is, is how long do you keep the policy rate at 5%? And when do you start cutting? Which for most economists, it seems like the general consensus is that cuts will begin around the summertime, starting around the June period. And Benjamin Tal believes that there's going to be 150 basis points uh, rate cut. Benjamin Tal, for those who don't know, is a CIBC chief deputy economist, um, one of the more respected economists in, in the Canadian banking world. So he believes it's going to be about 150 basis points rate cut. But who knows? I mean, there's been predictions all over the place by every bank over the past two years. And for the vast majority, the predictions have been wrong. Anyways, enough rambling for me. We're going to jump on to today's episode. And honestly, this is one of my favorite episodes I've recorded ever, period. And likewise with Mayu, he's not here to say it, but we've discussed endlessly how excited we are to bring this episode to you guys. We have James Null, who is a real estate expert extraordinaire. He's not only a real estate investor, but also an agent as well, who boasts a portfolio of over 300 rental units and is an extremely savvy investor. He started off doing small projects as most of us do, and then eventually grew his portfolio to multifamily investing, development, and so many other strategies in between. He invests into the Alberta market, uh, which his brokerage does a lot of business in, but he was also able to expand his brokerage into Vancouver as well. We get into so many different topics, especially about the Alberta market, diving deep into it, about the market peaks, the troughs, What's driving the economy in Alberta? What's driving the rental rates in Alberta to skyrocket? What's driving the prices to skyrocket? Where he sees Alberta going in the next couple of years, where he sees the investment opportunities, what has changed in that market, and so much more. You do not want to miss this episode. Honestly, one of the most insightful episodes we've had in recent times. And I hope you guys enjoy. And if you do, make sure to leave a five-star review, share this with a friend, comment, do whatever you can to support the podcast. And let's jump in with a special guest, James Null. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Mr. James Null. James, thank you for joining us all the way from Vancouver, I believe. How is everything going? Hey, thanks for having me on your podcast, guys. I'm really excited to talk real estate today. Things are going great. Right now, at the time of filming, it's the week between Christmas and New Year. So I've been spending quality time with the family and just enjoying myself getting ready for the new year. James, James originally booked this, I think, for Boxing Day, if I'm not mistaken. It was yesterday, right? <laughs> I think maybe, yeah. Yeah, I knew I had a pretty quiet day on Boxing Day. So I figured chatting real estate was uh, the thing to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it speaks to the work ethic, right? I think. Um, but, but James, we've obviously heard a, a lot of great things about you from our own network. But for ourselves and anyone that doesn't know you coming from the other side of the country, why don't you give everyone your background, how you got started on the investing side, uh, what that meant for the realtor business and the various other businesses and ventures that you're involved in? I, I actually got started as an investor first. The, uh, the real estate portion becoming a realtor came second. I was just graduating university and um, 
bought a house, rented the rooms to my buddies. It worked really, really well. It got good ROI from that. And so I thought, okay, why don't I try that again? Bought another house, rented more rooms to more people that I knew. And that really got the ball rolling. And then I just had such a passion for real estate that I thought, hey, I should get my license because I want to do all things real estate all the time. And that was about 20 years ago. And since then, I've gotten into all, all kinds of different asset classes, small multifamily, larger multifamily. I've developed luxury houses. I've developed purpose-built rentals. We've got some Airbnb short-term rental units in our portfolio. And then on the real estate side, you know, we founded our business in Edmonton, Alberta, but we found that out-of-province investing is extremely popular in Alberta, especially in Edmonton. And the bridges that we built to Vancouver were so strong that it made sense at, uh, at that point to go and open an office in Vancouver. So now we've got an Edmonton headquarters for Alberta. We've got our BC headquarters in Vancouver. We've got really, really intelligent, experienced realtors in both cities that help investors out from all across the country. And, you know, I've got my eyes open for the next deal somewhere in Western Canada, whatever makes the most sense. Awesome. So, I mean, you got started, it seems like a similar journey to a lot of people, right? Getting started with some of the smaller investments and then growing and evolving from there. So kind of want to hear your perspective on actually first, before we get into that, what market was it that you first invested in? Was it in BC or was it Edmonton? It was in Edmonton first. Yeah. I wanted to be physically close to the properties. I mean, I didn't really know a lot about real estate investing. So I learned as I went and being able to physically go to the properties, I was doing all self property management. And just like he said, I started small. I mean, I didn't have a ton of money and I assuredly didn't have a lot of risk tolerance. So I started with one little place and worked my way up from there. So you started investing in Edmonton back when, I guess, I think if I'm doing the math right, it was close to its peak or it was a very hot market and then it sort of dropped off from there and then recovered. Would you walk us through how the investment strategies, how the climate sort of changed as you were investing in real estate? Because we're seeing something similar. Well, it's not similar, but we are experiencing our first shakiness in the Toronto market in what seems to be a few decades, right? So kind of want to hear your experiences through it. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right with your history of the market in, in Alberta. We uh, had that peak in 08, 09. So I was lucky enough to buy several properties before the peak that appreciated. But I also bought a lot of properties at the peak then proceeded to depreciate. And so, you know, my whole portfolio by about 2009 didn't have a lot of equity in it because some had gone up, some had gone down. My entire approach to investing at the time was to really focus on cash flow. And even in Alberta to this day, it's a market where you can fairly easily find cash flow. The rents are relatively high compared to the purchase price of the properties. So even though you know I did market analyses and appraisal of the properties, I saw that the equity position wasn't strong. The interest rates were so low for so long that I was able to pay down a ton of principal and the rents covered off the expenses, which again, allowed me to keep the properties going. So I started investing as an extremely young person, you know, early 20s. And I, I had my eyes on the long game. And I thought, you know, even if this takes 10 years, I'll be in my early 30s when most people are just starting to think about real estate investing with already having held these properties for 10 years. So instead of getting too fussed about the up and down of the market, I really made sure I had a eye for the long game and was patient with the properties and just did everything I could to keep them all maintained so that the tenant profile stayed good. My repairs and maintenance bills didn't get out of hand. And here we are 
at the start of what looks to be like another boom in Alberta. And I'm glad I, I have all that property under my name. Awesome. That sounds pretty awesome. I think um, it, it, it speaks to the importance of cash flow in a down cycle, right? Like what you dealt with in 08, 09 or, or whatever the exact time period was, but you were able to withstand it. Cause I, I remember I was working in um, my first like full-time job and there's people that had come from Alberta and moved to Ontario and they were still holding on to, I think it was Calgary condos, what they were talking about back then. And they were like underwater on the equity, losing like some like X amount of dollars per month. Because it was a condo versus like, you probably, it sounds like had some better like cash flowing properties in Edmonton and so on, right? But that, that sounds pretty impressive. So where do you go from there? Because you've done a couple of the smaller investment properties. Um, at what point, or, or did you continue to do the smaller ones or did you jump into the bigger buildings? I'm just curious what the investment journey was like over the last like 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I spent probably the first five to eight years just on houses. Closer to eight years, actually. Houses with basement suites side-by-side duplexes with basement suites. So I didn't buy anything more than four units under one title for the first eight years. And then, you know, at one point I started getting curious about multifamily because I had built my career and my reputation and my network to the point where I started getting to know people that could afford to invest in larger properties. And I started getting really fascinated by how multifamily worked because the financing for multifamily is different than the way that you increase the value in multifamily properties is different. And at that that really intrigued me and I was ready for a new challenge. So I spent about a year learning, doing my research, understanding, talking to different professionals and just getting my, my mindset and my readiness wrapped around multifamily. And then, you know, the right multifamily deal came up, put in the offer, started approaching people that I knew could be my investors and it all came together. And that, that triggered about a four or five year period of very aggressive growth in multifamily. We ended up buying about 20 buildings and some of them we flipped because it made sense to do it. And I ended up keeping about 11 of them. So, <laughs> you know, in, in my portfolio right now, that's what we've got going on in the multifamily world. And, um, you know, it just, there wasn't any formula rhyme or reason to it. It just, it was really with, within myself. My confidence level had grown to the point where my appetite for a new challenge, it just felt like the right time to start learning a new asset class and I, I'm up for it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people, again, uh, it, it's sort of a mindset shift to jump into these bigger asset classes, but it sounds like you went in and, and you went in hard growing that portfolio. A lot of things have changed since, I mean, when you started investing in the markets and it seems like you went through a couple of microcycles since then. And obviously, as you mentioned earlier, there's sort of a boom now and you as a multifamily investor who bought, I would say it, it seemed like you bought in a time where it was still sort of depressed around that market. You're still able to get really good cap rates. I'm hearing stories about Edmonton having six to seven percent cap rates again. I'm not sure what you were buying in at, but how has the strategy shifted since then? Are multifamilies still a viable investment there? And if they are, what is the strategy there? Is it like simply tenant turnaround and then refi, get your money out and buy the next one? Or has it shifted to something more, I guess, creative than that? There's a lot there to unpack. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on one of the questions I think is going to be very telltale. And that's what the biggest shift in the market has been. You know, obviously prices slowly and surely go up over time. It is real estate. That's what happens. But the biggest change in the Canadian marketplace that I've noticed since the start of my career is around financing. And to give you an example, my first rental property I bought with 5% down at a 40-year amortization. That's unheard of. You're not going to get a 40-year amortization on a rental property and you're not going to be able to buy a property with anything less than 20% down. 
the first five or six rental properties I bought, I put 5% down. The first three primary residences I bought, I was able to put 0% down. And when I went to get my lending, I had a job letter. I didn't even have to submit my tax filing, if you can believe it. So sounds like a dream. Slowly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's no wonder why we had the subprime mortgage crisis if that's all you needed to do to get lend that much money, but that's another story. But again, I was in the right place at the right time. But lending requirements, both in residential and commercial, just keep getting more strict, more challenging, less loan to value, higher interest rates, more hoops to jump through, more paperwork you need to bring to the table for the mortgage brokers. It seems like every six to eight months, the lending rules incrementally change to make it incrementally more difficult to get a loan, whether it's a stress test or you know other requirements for lending, shifts to DCR requirements, that sort of thing. So when people ask me, how did you get your portfolio started? The reality is I got my portfolio started with a different game with different rules. And if I was building a portfolio from scratch again today, I'd have to do something totally differently in terms of borrowing because the banks simply don't lend in the same way to do day that they did back then. Now that's okay. I personally think that even though these lending rules are tougher to make work, it does prevent people from over leveraging and taking on too much risk. But I'm then going to key off on one of the points you asked about, which is what have I noticed in the creative space? Well, the rise of creative financing has been huge over the last five years because the banks are so hard to deal with that agreement for sales are becoming way more popular with the increase in interest rates. People are now looking at assumable mortgages more than ever because you know, like I still have several multifamily properties where we've got 10-year fixed mortgage rates around 2%. You know, if we ever wanted to sell those properties, selling with that assumable mortgage is going to be a very appealing value proposition to a potential buyer. And it's an asset as a potential seller. With the banks being harder to work with, if sellers want to sell, there are more and more of them are getting creative by offering lending solutions to buyers. So for, for everybody listening, it is really worth your while to get more educated on creative financing options, ideas, solutions, because the harder the banks get to work with, the more it makes sense to work with your vendor to come up with a, a sale proposition that works for all parties. So that's kind of the biggest shift I've seen since I got started is just borrowing money has gotten a lot trickier. And so there's more and more variations of creative financing that I'm seeing in deals all the time. When I compare that to like Ontario at the peak of the market here, which call it like 2022, 2021 or whatever, you were, you were seeing basically a lack of creative deals, right? Cause sellers could just put something on the market and it would sell and you know, why would I then offer a seller exactly. or agreement sales or whatever, right? So are you guys seeing that level of demand in Alberta right now? And if there is significant demand, wouldn't that essentially remove like the opportunity for creative deal making? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, if we stretch the timeline out over 10 years, Alberta's renaissance, where it's become a hot market, this is like 12 months, maybe 18 months now. Be prior to 2022, dating all the way back to 2014, the Alberta market was in a huge slump. It was plateaued. We weren't seeing a lot of values appreciating. Rents were not going up. The market was very, very stagnant. And so it was a buyer's market. And in a buyer's market, buyers get to do things like ask for creative financing options. So in Alberta, we've got 
a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience putting together creative deals. And those are strategies that might inform, you know, buyers in Ontario. Well, your slump might not last 10 years. When it shifts towards a buyer's market, buyers get to ask for more things. In a very unsophisticated way, what do buyers get to ask for? Well, lower prices, longer possession dates, longer condition periods, smaller deposits. That's level one of what buyers get to ask for. You know, the more advanced version of that is creative financing, vendor participation in the sale, et cetera, et cetera. So as long as it stays a buyer's market, I think you guys in Ontario are going to have a lot of opportunities to get creative and ask for things from a buyer that you're absolutely right. No buyer would get away with asking for because, hey, if that guy over there is willing to pay all cash with no conditions, how the heck are you going to ask for a whole bunch of extra bonuses and creative things thrown into a deal when as a seller, obviously I'm going to deal with the buyer who doesn't have any complexities and just is bringing money to the table. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And even Mayu and I have been throwing some weird conditions in our offers in Ontario. And to our surprise, either would get countered with something pretty reasonable or people will end up accepting it. Uh, so it's, it's a good opportunity out there. So you're speaking the past, let's call it 18 months, Alberta has, um, I, I guess, sort of boomed for, for lack of better words. There's a lot more demand there. What, what is the reason for that, in your opinion? Is it simply money being funneled from, let's say, BC and Ontario? Or is there, is there more of an underlying reason on why prices are climbing up aggressively? I think there's a number of reasons. So I'll speak to them. It'll be a bit of a lengthy answer. I think number one is Alberta can be a tough place to live. It's, it's colder. The climate's very, very harsh. And um, you know, Edmonton especially is a, still has a very small town vibe. It's an industrial town. It's not really a metropolitan town. And so from a lifestyle perspective, it's not everybody's cup of tea. So when the, the price gap between living in Edmonton and living in Vancouver or living in Edmonton and living in Toronto isn't that huge, the affordability gap isn't that dramatic, people say, yeah, of course, it's worth it. I'll spend more money to live in a place like Vancouver. It's one of the, you know, or Toronto. They're two, those are two cities on the global radar as lifestyle cities. But when the affordability gap is now so big, that people are saying, I can't even afford to put food on my table and buy groceries and gas in Ontario. And you're telling me I can pack it up, move to Alberta and buy a 3000 square foot house, put food on the table and have money left over for vacations if I move to Edmonton? Well, yeah, you can. And so that affordability gap is attracting a lot of established Canadians to the Alberta market because when you go from not being able to afford even a basic lifestyle to being able to afford a fairly lavish lifestyle with the amount of disposable income you have living in Alberta, it's starting to make sense for people. The second reason is that as we know, Canada has opened its gates to 500,000 new Canadians per year for the next couple of years. And if you look at the statistics as to where those people are landing, a lot of them, the majority of them, like a disproportionately high amount are ending up in Alberta. And so when you look at the migration statistics, People are moving to Alberta. And what do people do? People drive a real estate economy. They need a place to live. Simple supply and demand economics mean that rents increase, demand for housing increases, housing prices increase. The reason for that is tying all the way back to affordability. Alberta is a great place for new Canadians because it's very, very affordable. The taxes are very, very low. And the barriers of entry to the workplace are also very low because Alberta is a more of an industrial place to be, especially Edmonton, with, you know, for example, lower English competency or lower skill sets, you can still get 
a job paying you an hourly rate that is more than sufficient to put a nice roof over your family's head, put food on the table and have a little money left over to start saving to buy a place of your own. So the economic case for a new Canadian is very, very strong in Alberta. And they don't have the same attitude towards living in cold Edmonton that, you know, pre-existing Canadians from Vancouver or Toronto might have. They just see the opportunity for their family and they're going for it. So between interprovincial migration from established Canadians combined with out-of-country migration from non-Canadians who are becoming new Canadians, the population is taking off. And we all know that population growth is a leading measure to housing prices. So it's a combination of both. To really summarize that point, it's Canadians and new Canadians both flocking to the province for the opportunity that exists there. That was a really good summary. No, you, you actually just really brought that all in together really well in a concise way. I think Edmonton or Alberta as a whole's minimum wage is about $15, which is, I think it's about the same in, in Ontario. It could be a little bit off there, but, and your rents are, are drastically cheaper. So even if you choose not to be a homeowner and you're a renter, your disposal income and your savings rate and stuff like that, which for a lot of new migrants, they, they don't ever really intend to settle your long-term, uh, just come make your money and go, right? So that kind of works there as well. So, so one of the things, and this is kind of the rumor mill and just talking to other investors and stuff like that. So I couldn't be factually wrong here. One of the things I've heard about Alberta is just the ease of development, which sounds to many like it's a good thing, um, which I, I understand in theory it is. But in terms of like us as real estate investors, we're always concerned about the preservation of the value of the assets that we buy, right? So Vancouver, landlocked, you, you've essentially got development. My geography's shit. So you've got development going, I think, towards like Surrey and a couple of these other suburbs, right? But the, the core um, uh, Vancouver is kind of developed already. Toronto, you're landlocked against the water and the Greenlands or whatever that thing is called, right? And so what are your thoughts on that? Like in theory, could development not just keep Alberta's housing market down because it's actually so easy to develop? So what is in fact good for tenants works against investors a little bit. Is that the case? Is there something that we don't know about Edmonton and Calgary as large cities? I'm just curious about the impact of development there that you're seeing. Yeah, that's a really intelligent point. That's a great observation. And that is, I think, one of the main reasons that the values in Edmonton and Alberta do lag behind the rest of the major urban centers in the country because there is more abundant available development land. You're absolutely right. In Vancouver, land's at a premium. And so because of supply and demand, there isn't as much land as there is development potential. But one thing we are seeing is that the cities are both reaching this critical mass where the infrastructure to continue growing out is becoming increasingly more expensive. Because if you want to place that far from the core, we've got to have roads that then need to be serviced. You've got sewer lines, water lines, natural gas lines, and electricity lines. All of that and bringing those services further and further away from the core are very, very expensive. And so we're starting to hit that trigger point where the cities are realizing that it's becoming way too expensive from a taxation perspective to keep going out. Fascinating point. If you look at the property tax for a house in Edmonton, the property tax annually for a $500,000 house in Edmonton is higher than the annual property tax, for example, a $1.5 million house in Vancouver. So property tax as a percentage of home value is so much higher in Edmonton and Calgary because there's so much more urban sprawl utilizing very expensive infrastructure. And also keep in mind, winter kicks the crap out of the city. 
So our road infrastructure is significantly more expensive than Vancouver or Toronto, for example. So the city, they've seen this happen. And they, the, the city of Edmonton is taking very dramatic policy initiatives to incentivize developers to start redeveloping land in the core. The city of Edmonton has just instituted zoning changes and bylaw changes to allow very, very like lightning fast ease of development for medium density in the core of the city. Fourplex, sixplex, eightplex inventory are now allowed on what used to be residential only lots. And the permit application period is very fast tracked. For example, if you wanted to build a sixplex in an interior lot in Vancouver, the permitting process, neighborhood engagement process, rezoning process, that's like a two to two and a half year process while you're expected to pay the carrying costs on a $2 million piece of property. In Edmonton, if you wanted to build that same sixplex on the same type of lot in the same quality of neighborhood in the city, you can go from closing on the property to having your demo permit in like three to five months. And you're paying carrying costs on a $300,000 piece of property instead of a $2 million piece of property. So I think what we're going to see very dramatically in those two cities over the next five to 10 years are big money developers refocusing into the inner city because the city of Edmonton has just really tipped the scales in terms of making it very, very easy to develop that type of property. Now, there is still a lot of developable land. We call that greenfield development, where you're basically taking a greenfield of farmer's field and turning it into you know, your, your stereotypical urban sprawl. That's still going to happen, but we're already seeing inventory levels for that type of product start to decrease, and we're already seeing permit applications for the redevelopment of interior lots start to increase. So treat it like a dimmer switch, not a light switch. Like It's not like Greenfield is going to stop and infill is going to increase tomorrow, but the city of Edmonton is very, very aggressively trying to tip the scales in that direction. So that's something that's happening like literally right now at ground level in the city of Edmonton. And we're seeing investors from all across the country take advantage of that. Because if you're a Vancouverite, for the same price as a single family house that will negative cash flow $10,000 a month in the city of Vancouver, you can develop an eight unit building in Edmonton for the exact same price for your $2 million that will cash flow and put money in your pocket every month. And instead of buying an old maintenance requiring house, you're building a brand new building that's like fresh, purpose-built, rental, just the way you like it, with a 10-year warranty, ready to rent to high-quality new Canadians that are flocking to the province. So like, when we're paying attention to what's happening in Edmonton right now, that's what the smart money is doing in Edmonton right now. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Uh, actually, a realtor, another realtor that I followed down, maybe you know him as well, uh, Steve Storetsky. He's down at the Vancouver area. He is investing pretty heavily, not in Edmonton, but in, in Calgary, doing development, sort of what you're saying there. So it seems like a lot of the smart money is going there. I'm just curious, are the numbers sort of penciling out there? Because we're seeing Ontario and BC, as you probably were, taking sort of the same initiative and taking these residential lots, allowing people to build four, five, six units on it. But the numbers don't, it's, it's still very hard to check out, right? So is that sort of the same case in Edmonton or are, are you able to refi, have a cash flow positive and still pull? a good chunk of your money out. Yeah, keep in mind when interest rates are like in the 6% range, cash flow positive anywhere in Canada 
unless you're going to like the smallest of the small town where your risk level is through the roof, is very, very difficult. So whereas places like Vancouver and Toronto have gone from maybe kind of sort of, sort of just barely neutral cash flow to massive negative cash flow, Edmonton has gone from massive, massive positive cash flow to close to neutral cash flow. So like if we rewind the clock two years to when interest rates were at 2%, you could throw a dart at the map of the city of Edmonton and buy that property and cash flow three to $500 a month. No problem. Like that's what the affordability index looked like when the interest rates were that low. Now you have to be a bit more purposeful, but it's very, very commonplace to find places that are cash flow neutral and or a little bit cash flow positive. The other nice thing about the affordability ratios in Edmonton is that they actually make a lot of these properties qualify for MLI select financing through CMHC, which allows you to push your amortization out to 50 years and get lower than average interest rates, which helps with the cash flow. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh question on the different markets in Alberta. So we're talking a lot about Edmonton. Um, sort of what are the big differences between Edmonton, Calgary, and are, are there any other tertiary markets that one can invest in? Because in Ontario, one of the common patterns that we've been seeing is, is that GTA is way too expensive. So people go two hours away, three hours away, four hours away, and still you'll find cities with populations of two, 300,000, even three, four hours away at Toronto. What is sort of that strategy like in, in, in Alberta? Is that something people don't do at all? It definitely is part of the program. I mean, both Edmonton and Calgary, uh, their greater metropolitan areas, like maybe half an hour outside of city limits in every direction, will have your collection of small towns. You know, in Edmonton, you've probably heard of towns like Leduc or Fort Saskatchewan, Spruce Grove, Beaumont. Like those are, those are investable options as well. And then Calgary has its own collection of towns in its periphery as well. But when you go outside of the greater Vancouver area, the greater, or sorry, greater Calgary area and greater Edmonton area, you are going to see really small towns. Like we're talking 10, 20, 30, 40,000 person small towns. Like that's what happens when you go two, three hours away. So those towns are typically resource towns, especially in like in the northern part of the province, they're going to be, you know, heavy on oil and gas. In the southern part of the province, they're going to be oil and gas and agriculture. So those small towns, the smaller you get as an urban center, the more volatility it has. Because, you know, for example, if you're dealing with a 20,000 person town and a thousand people leave, that's a 5% increase in vacancy rate because 5% of the people left. Conversely, if there's a compelling value proposition for people to come to that town, if a thousand people come to town, that increases the population by 5% and the prices spike. So if you're going to play the game of getting outside of the greater urban area, Number one, have the mental fortitude to be ready to accept that kind of volatility. And number two, be very, very certain that you're on the right side of the, of the boom cycle. We're seeing our investors, we just dealt with a client that wanted to buy in Fox Creek, which is like a nothing town of 10,000 people halfway to the oil patch or people investing in Sylvan Lake, Bonneville, um, you know, Lamont. Like if you look up these towns, you're going to have to zoom all the way in on Google Maps just to see it's like, you know, five blocks this way and five blocks that way. These are tiny towns, but there's mm-hmm. investment opportunities there. And, and, you know, investors who are the most concerned about the cheapest purchase price, the most concerned about the highest possible cash flow penciling out on paper, who are willing to accept the risk and volatility in exchange for those really high numbers, that's who's going to those towns right now. Interesting. Okay. I think we see the, the same thing in Ontario, right? Like, I think it's, um, 
uh, maybe it's a slightly different avatar, right? But it's guys that maybe are limited on, on cash, limited on capital or have, uh, have a need for like a seriously significant amount of like cash flow, right? Those are the guys that are going to these markets. It sounds like the opposite in Ontario though. Here people are, are, are just kind of oblivious to, to the risks of like these small cities, but I think you did a really good job just outlining very small movements. Just because I'm aware of the risks and can articulate it on this podcast doesn't necessarily mean that people going into these centers know what they're getting themselves into. So yeah. hopefully for all of you out there listening, like I'm not saying stay away from small towns. I'm saying be cautious and aware of what your business case looks like when you go there. Yeah, no, I've got a, I've got a nine plex in Kirkland Lake. It's a gold mining town here. And that property has the smallest mortgage, only 150K mortgage or something like that. But it gives me the most anxiety because I'm like, at any point, if they decide to, to decrease production on this mine, like what am I going to do with this property? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, no, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious, um, obviously your capital will impact the strategy, but what are the strategies that work today in Alberta as a whole that you'd recommend to a lot of people? And, and I'll tell you, uh, like four years ago, 2019, I met with someone from Alberta. I was just getting started my journey. He was just getting started as well. And he was telling me about the fourplex conversion, the duplexes, and then you add the basement units. I know a lot of people were still doing that in 2020, 2021. Um, but I'm curious um, if someone has five properties and if someone has like 15 properties, what are the two strategies that you'd uh, recommend yeah. they consider? Yeah. The, the duplex conversion into fourplex that dominated the last, you know, five years prior to that, it was just adding secondary suites to existing houses. So Edmonton just keeps going for more density. You know, the evolution has been the best thing to buy when I started my career was houses with basement suites. And then the city of Edmonton instituted a bylaw that allowed for legal secondary suites and side-by-side duplexes. Okay, now that makes the most sense. Now, just recently, the city of Edmonton has increased the bylaw to allow for secondary suites in three-unit townhouses and four-unit townhouses, which essentially gives you a six-plex, three uppers, three lowers, or an eight-plex, four uppers and four lowers. And then the city of Edmonton, as we were discussing, has amped it up one more time where now instead of having to build those types of buildings on very specific lots, corner lots, oversized lots, the city of Edmonton is now allowing those types of buildings on interior lots. So, I mean, the the answer to your question is the most density on the most affordable lots is always what's causing people to gravitate to it. So the evolution from the basement suites in the side-by-side duplexes were two iterations past that because now we can put the basement suites in three plexes and four plexes and now we can put those three plexes and four plexes on interior lots. So that for, for people who aren't super capital tight, like as long as your budget's a million and a half to two in purchase price, that's what everybody's getting hot and bothered about buying. That's where the money is going. People who have an appetite for risk and the time available to manage a construction project, they're buying the raw land, hiring builders, building their properties. The kind of people that want a little bit less risk, a little bit less fuss, they just want to buy it, set it and forget it. They're buying the finished product. Both of those things are available. But I would say in terms of what people are buying in Alberta, that's going to be the most popular right now. That being said, still tons of houses with basement suites available around $500,000. Still houses like a house with a basement suite and then a, then a detached garage out back with another suite above it. Three unit property. You, know, you can buy those for six fifty dollars to $800,000. Like there's a lot available at different price points. But the common theme I want to leave with is that in an environment where cash flow is at a premium because interest rates are so high, people want to put as many rentable suites in a property as they can possibly put in that property at the price point they're at. 
So at every price point, it's about multi-unit properties. That's what we're seeing really making sense in the Alberta market right now. Again, really, really well said. <laughs> uh, so I just want to clarify something there that you said. So it sounds like if you're trying to get into the three townhomes with the basement suites or four townhomes with the basement suites, if you're trying to buy a finished product, those are ending up at a million five to two million. And if you're trying to buy something that can be developed, uh, do you have a ballpark idea of like how much capital is usually required or? Yeah. I mean, discount the purchase price of the finished product by 150 to 200. And that's kind of what you're doing as a development project. That comes with the asterisks of where are you borrowing your money from? If you're financing this project with a bunch of secondary financing sources and B lenders and paying like 10, 12, 14% interest on 2 million bucks for a year while you're developing it, your ROI is going to suck. If yeah. you're cash heavy, you're using it from a home equity line of credit, you know, your, your cost of borrowing is low, you're going to profit. So that'd be my caution to people who are gravitating towards the idea of developing. I'm going to just say, hey, big caution sign. If you're not using inexpensive money to do your development, if you're using expensive money, money that you have to borrow a lot of money with a high interest rate, the ROI you think you're going to get will get completely swallowed up by your interest payments. And then you're taking on a bunch of extra risk for no additional return on investment. So, so you know what's, what's interesting is like I'm literally just on Realtor.ca because I was, I was curious. I was looking at Edmonton while, while, while we were talking. Uh, I see six townhouses for a million seven ninety five, brand new, exactly what you're talking about. I think it's three up, three down, three garages in the back. Exactly what you're talking about. But then I also see like the purpose built older like apartment housing, right? For about seven to eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars for seven to eight units. Why is there that big of a spread? Like because there's one thing in Ontario, right? In Ontario, you've got rent control. You yeah. got things that have been there for twenty years. You yeah. can't get them out. You can't do anything. But why are people discounting the older stuff by almost a million dollars? Well, keep in mind, you know, in this conversation, it's like you're com comparing a brand new Tesla to a 15 year old Honda Civic. Like that nine unit building is not brand new. It is not built to brand new code. The suites are smaller. If you're looking at something that's $100,000 per door, comparing it to something that's, you know, $350,000 per door, though those old apartment buildings exist in abundance in Edmonton. Now, that's a strategy that's also very popular to people who are willing to take on development risk because, you know, whether it's nine units, 12 units, 15 units, 24 units, there's a lot of really, really old, fairly worn out purpose-built apartment buildings from the 60s and 70s, like the nineplex you're probably looking at. And, you know, these buildings have been rentals for 30 to 50 years. They all need a little bit of love. They probably need a ton of renovation. And because we're in a growing market, there is definitely a business case for buying that type of unit, going in, doing cosmetic renovations, doing the renovations that your lender is going to require to afford the loan. Because sometimes if the boiler is old, the roof is old, if there's like mechanical deficiencies, a lot of lenders will require you to bring those mechanical deficiencies up to, the, to their useful economic life being less than their expiry. I'm getting a little technical here, but like, no, that's good. Yeah. long story short, <laughs> you can buy some of these old apartment buildings, go in, do a reno, increase the rents. And hopefully you boost to the net operating income by enough to do a refinance and pull the equity out. That's also very, very popular, much more capital intensive, much more risky. I would call that a more quote unquote advanced strategy. So, you know, if we're speaking to an audience that's mostly beginner to intermediate investors, I would encourage them to go towards the less complex investing that we've been discussing throughout the duration of the podcast. That being said, there are literally hundreds of scrappy old apartment buildings at Edmonton that are super cheap. 
that need a lot of love. But the big, huge caution sign, it's not as easy as it looks. So I want to get into the cap, like just just sort of carrying on to Mayu's question there. Um, What is sort of the stabilized cap rate for that new product? And what would be the stabilized cap rate for this old, uh, worn down, let's say nine plus, once it's fully renovated, are, yeah. are, is it a huge gap in the stabilized cap rates? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, your your cap rates for the newer stuff will be four and a half, give or take half a point. And yeah. the older stuff will be five and a half, give or take half a point. Once so, it's fully done up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, can you buy something higher than a six cap? Yes. But remember, like, a cap rate is literally just translating risk into a number. Yeah. The higher your yeah. cap rate, the more risk exists in the building, either in poor quality of building, poor quality of location, poor quality of existing tenants. Like, you don't get a, a high cap rate as a freebie. There's always a reason that the cap rate is higher. Yeah. Yeah. But as you know, investors, we thrive on the margins and we try to make margins with it. We take the risk on with the cap yeah. rates, but we, we, we thrive on, on the margins there to make the numbers work. Also, okay. Now that we talked a little bit about the, uh, a lot about the Alberta market, different investing strategies, we just run around it off on the tenant side of things, right? Because Earlier on, you were mentioning that there are a lot of people in Canada moving towards Alberta. There are a lot of immigrants moving into Alberta. What are you seeing on the leasing side of things? Are things leasing up in a month? Are there multiples? Are there lineups for student rentals? Do you expect this sort of pressure on rents to continue to increase quite drastically? Because we've seen things sort of temp- taper off in, in Toronto. And I'm sure same thing in Vancouver. I'm not saying rents hit its peak, but it's tapered off in growth. It's sort of flatlined right now. Yeah. Yeah, in Alberta, we've seen like 20, 25% growth in rents in the last year. And it's not really showing signs slowing out. We're not at lineup out the door part of it being a hot market, but like, you know, we've gone from a 60 to 90 day lease up period for average inventory to a zero to 30 day lease up for inventory in the last 12 months. And I see that trend continuing. Like it's, you know, our vacancy rates have shrunk substantially. They're getting, you know, they're nearing, they're, they're definitely sub five and getting, getting tighter. So, more people are going to keep moving here and uh, that rental demand. I mean, people rent before they buy usually when they get to a new place. That rental mm-hmm. demand is still going to be very, very strong. Are you finding tenant quality pretty decent there? As that, that's the other thing, right? Like you can have low vacancy rates, but tenant quality can still be pretty shoddy at times. Well, tenant quality is going to be shoddy if you buy a crappy old nineplex. But if you <laughs> buy a beautiful brand new sixplex, your tenant quality is going to be very high. So, you know, your, your tenant enough. quality rises to match the quality of the products you're putting on the market. And Edmonton is no different. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that was really well said. And the reality is it's the same, it's the same thing that we face in, in any township anywhere, right? Like the, the shittier stuff is going to attract worse quality tenants and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I'm saying that free of judgment. I mean, because usually, like, as you said, shittier stuff, you buy for cheaper because you buy for cheaper. Your payments are lower because your payments are lower. Your cash flow is higher. So you earn that high cash flow by dealing with shitty tenant problems. Yep. Yeah. Oh, very well said. I guess one thing that we didn't actually t- touch on in this podcast, that I think is a, is a huge part of your value value as well as always on the real estate side. Uh, we ended up just keep diving into the investment journey and in, in the entire Alberta market, which we didn't necessarily anticipate going into this podcast. But I'm just curious. Um, obviously, you started off on the investor side. You went into the realtor, realtor game, the realtor business. You grew out a really big business there. Uh, what's, what's kind of like the Coles Notes version of, of your story on that business? Do you operate today with partners? Are you kind of going out alone, a team, a brokerage? What's kind of the background? Yeah, on the real estate side, I mean, I've got a couple of different partners in our real estate business. We run the team model. We're not brokered. We are at a brokerage, 
but our business structure is that we're a team structure. Um, on the ownership side, I mean, I own some stuff completely solo. I own a lot of stuff with joint venture partners. Um, you know, I've raised into corporations and to GPLP structures, depending on, you know, the, the season of investing that we were in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have a, a money tree. So sometimes I stumble across properties that I don't have enough money to buy on my own and partners come into the mix. And sometimes I do have the money to buy it all on my own. And so there's, there's no more cooks in the kitchen, but me, you know, I mean, one thing I've learned a lot over business is you can always grow bigger and better when you're working as a team than if you try to tackle everything yourself. So, um, you know, I've always, I've always done really, really well choosing to work with really, really good people. And, um, yeah, I'd say that's, that's probably one of my tenants of the success I've had so, so far is identifying and working with just outstandingly wonderful people. Awesome. So at this point in the podcast, James, we like to ask you guys two questions. So the first question is for someone that's a newer investor looking to get started in today's market, what type of advice or feedback or anything like that would you like to share with them? Yeah. You know, for brand new investors, I would say, don't be scared to invest in your, in yourself and your education. You know, I mean, but also be careful what you invest in because there are dozens of self-proclaimed real estate gurus trying to sell you dozens of different courses and coaching programs. Invest in yourself, invest in your education, but do your due diligence for what you're going to be learning or otherwise you might end up spending thousands of bucks on a bunch of pre-recorded content that you could have watched on YouTube. So, but educate yourself. The more you like, knowledge is power. And if you take the right training program, the return on that investment will be huge when you buy a good deal instead of buying a, a losing deal. I'd also just say, respect leverage. You know, you go on a lot of podcasts and talk to a lot of people who brag about zero money down, no money down deals, low money down deals. But the more money you borrow, the more payments you have. And if something doesn't go according to plan, those payments get really expensive, really quick and can collapse your entire business. Awesome. And the second question I would like to ask is, where do you see your business going in the next two to three years? And we can talk about the investing side or the realtor side, whichever one you want. Yeah, absolutely. On the realtor side, I mean, we're going to be opening offices in Kelowna, Victoria and Calgary over the next five to 10 years. We're growing. We're at the, we're just at the early stage of our, of hitting our peak of our careers. So we've got 25 years of really, really solid effort ahead of us. And I'm really excited to be a part of that. And on the investing side, I'm going to be focusing more and more on purpose-built rentals. I like stuff that is high quality, brand new, attracts the highest quality tenants. I think that with the housing crisis, that's that the government has basically created for itself by allowing all these new Canadians. We're already seeing it happen at the municipal level, provincial and federal level, where incentives and programs are rolling out to make it easier and easier for developers to develop purposeful rentals. So uh, I want to take advantage of some of those programs and build some really nice inventory for all the lovely people that are moving to this country. Awesome. Really appreciate uh, you jumping on the podcast, James. There are a ton of golden nuggets throughout if anyone wants to follow you, learn more about your journey, work with you, or learn more about the Alberta market, how could they best do so? Yeah, of course. Our website is mogulrg.com, M-O-G-U-L-R-G.com. Click around a little bit. You'll be able to email me, call me, follow us on social media. We're, we put out a ton of content on social media too. So feel free to follow us anywhere you want at, at mogulrg. Awesome. And all of that will be down in the show notes below. If you guys enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend, leave us a five-star review. Um, leave a comment. It helps bring great guests like James on and it keeps us motivated to continue to bring valuable content to you all. So until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.